If you would, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> the second chapter in the book of Matthew is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, so ironic that this time last Last week, just seven days ago, we had a fountain that was frozen over outside, and everybody's bump, everybody is bundled up. and uh, And now today, it's like the the polar plunge is coming at noon, and everybody's going to be in shorts and be happy for it. I'm sure down at Tybee. So funny how things change. But you know, for for uh, for us, this season often comes to a screeching halt many times. You know, Christmas. It, it's amazing to me uh, how quickly the stores get back to normal, how quickly the radio stations get back to normal. That's always kind of a downer to me. That day after Christmas, when you get back in the in the in the truck or the car, whatever, you turn, you, you hit that radio, and it used to be Christmas music for the last four weeks, five weeks, or whatever. And then it's back to the same old stuff, and it's amazing how quickly things just sort of get back to normal. I don't know if that's the way it should be, but that's often the way that it is. Well, this morning, I want to just linger a little bit longer and finish out what I thought last Sunday was the last, really, message in the Christmas series, but uh, today we're going to finish it out with a passage of Scripture that's really forgotten. It's kind of the, the, the left-out part of the Christmas story that rarely do you ever hear any messages preached out of it, rarely do you ever see Bible studies uh, that center around it, but it's going to be a passage right here in uh, Matthew chapter 2 is where we're, where we're going to be. So we're all familiar with the other elements of the Christmas story, right? We're familiar with the angel making the announcement to Mary that she was going to conceive and bear a child. His name would be Jesus. We're familiar with the details of that story that Jesus would be born in the city of Bethlehem, prophesied by the prophets that even Mary and Joseph would travel 90 miles because of a census. Luke chapter 2 tells us from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. And while she was there, the time came for her to give birth. Jesus would be born. There was no room in the inn, and so he was uh, placed in a manger. There, kind of the picture is uh, somewhat of a stable, more accurately probably, uh, kind of a hewn-out cave or a natural cave, and he was placed there in the manger. And, and then after that, the uh, angel made the announcement to the shepherds out in the fields nearby that were watching their flocks, and then this multitude of angels appeared. They were worshiping and praising God. And, uh, and, and then the next thing we really see in the story is the visit from the wise men, and then we just say, well, Christmas is over. You know, those are kind of the elements that make it into almost every little Christmas pageant any children's ministry program that happens is going to include most of those elements that I've named, but that's where it ends. And any message series that you hear that are centered around, that are centered around Christmas, they just sort of end at that spot. And then we kind of move on to the rest of the Gospels or the rest of the New Testament. But there's more to the story, and a lot of you are familiar with this, but you've never really dug in and seen the implications of what the rest of this story has. It's kind of like that whole Paul, you know, the Paul Harvey uh, mentality. Let's just look at the rest of the story and see what comes out of it and what we can learn from it. Because God still works in a lot of ways today that are very similar, if not even identical, to what we see all the way back here in Matthew chapter 2, in that first Christmas and how he worked all the way back then. So we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. I guess you could call it the Egypt years, if you wanted to kind of give it a little bit of a title. That's that period of time that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph would spend ultimately in Egypt. There's a lot of detail here that the Bible gives us. There, there are a lot of kind of fill in the blanks that, that get filled in here when we begin to see. But the setting of what we're going to look at here in Matthew chapter 2 is that the Magi have already visited they brought their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's going to be real important for what we're about to read. They have visited, and now in the context of where we're going to pick up here in Matthew 2, they have now departed. They have left. We're assuming to travel back to where they came from, back to their homeland. And, uh, and now you've got Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. And they're also surrounded by these three gifts, the gold, the frankincense, 
and the myrrh that have been brought in worship and in adoration to who Jesus is by these wise men, by this, by this group of magi. And so let's go ahead and jump in here. Matthew chapter 2, let's begin in verse 13. We're going to move through uh, quite a few verses there as we make our way through the end of the chapter in Matthew 2. And, uh, and let's see the rest of the story. Let's look at this often forgotten, overlooked passage of Scripture that kind of ties the bow on top at the end of this Christmas story. After this, really all we, we know of Jesus before we get to the to, the, to his adult ministry, is at the age of 12 in the temple. So let's, uh, let's look at this important passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 2, let's start in verse 13. So it says, now when they had gone, this would be the Magi, who just previously in those verses immediately preceding verse 13, had brought their gifts. When they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So this is the second time that an angel of the Lord has ultimately made his presence known to Joseph. This is the second time he's visited. First time, do you remember? Uh, Mary had shared with Joseph that, that she w- had conceived, that she was going to be bearing a child. And, and if you remember, uh, Joseph was not quite sure what to do. He didn't know what to make of this. His determination was, you know what? Because he was a righteous man, I'm not going to drag her through uh, public uh, disgrace or attention. I'm just going to kind of back out of this. They had not been married. They were betrothed, which in order to end the betrothal period required for the most part, a divorce. So he was just going to back out and he was going to quietly divorce her so that she could move on with her life. He could move on with his. All he knew was that she had been unfaithful to him during that betrothal period. And it was at that point that an angel of the Lord came, visited Joseph and said, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child that she has conceived is of the, is of the Holy Spirit and his name will be called Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. And it was at that point when the angel made that first visit to Joseph that his heart was reassured. He understood the big picture. I'm sure he didn't understand every single nuance, every single implication, how possibly could he? But he did understand that this was something that God was up to, that she had not been unfaithful and that they were going to move on forward together at some point and become married. And so that was the first time the angel had visited Joseph. This is now the second time. A lot of time has passed. Some would, would feel that could be upwards of even two years possibly that we read the context of Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, and and so, so this angel comes the second time, and the context here is the safety of Joseph and his family. And what the angel is telling him to do there in verse 13 is to take his family, to take Mary, to take Jesus as a, as a small child, and to get up. There was an, an, an implication there of, of urgency. Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. And the reason for this was because Herod was going to ultimately try to destroy the child. Now, who is Herod here? So this would be Herod the Great. There are four Herods in the New Testament. This would be Herod the Great. He was the ruler over Judea. In many ways, you could say he was the king over, uh, over the Jews to a large degree. He had been placed there by the Roman Senate ultimately. He would conquered Judea. He ruled as king. But the Jews didn't really see him as their king. They didn't see him in line with Saul and with David and with Solomon. They didn't treat him as a legitimate king, even though that was the title that he held. But Herod was an interesting person. He was largely known for a lot of the advancements that he made in and around Jerusalem. He had fortified the city. He had built it up around the city. He had made enormous upgrades to the temple 
temple that's there. In fact, when Jesus, 30 years later, would begin his public ministry, when you're reading in the Gospels and Jesus is, is working through his ministry, and when you hear of him going into the temple, that would be the Herod's temple. It would be the temple that he had brought all of these upgrades to, essentially, and just a, an enormous project where he... He brought change to the temple, and this was where the Jews would worship. This was Herod the Great. But Herod the Great was also, <clears throat> he wasn't as great as his name makes him sound. He, he was also uh, um, very fearful, and he was very jealous of his throne. And whenever the news came from the Magi that there was a child-born king of the Jews, well, you remember the story. He, he asked the Magi, hey, go find him, come back, tell me where he is so that I can come and worship him too. That was never his desire. His desire was never to worship Jesus. His desire was to eliminate his rival because he felt that he was the king of the Jews. And so if you remember, when you put all that together, and when you put Herod in the context of his own history, that he was ruthless, that he was jealous for his throne, he had 46 members of the Sanhedrin killed at one point in his reign. He also had his own wife, and he had some of his children killed out of, out of fear for his throne to a large degree. I mean, this was a very ruthless man. And his plan was to eliminate this new, seemingly new, king of the Jews that was a rival to his throne. And so what the angel did was he warned Joseph, take your family and, and, and move to Egypt until I tell you further instructions. Look down at verse 14. It says, so Joseph got up and he took the child, that's Jesus, and his mother, that's Mary, while it was still night and he left for Egypt. D did you ever realize that Jesus lived in Africa? That sounds odd to say that, doesn't it? All right, we, we don't put him in that context. But in this period of his time, of his life, there he is in Egypt, there he is living out what had already <clears throat> been warned here by the angel, and that they've all transferred now to the land of Egypt. There's a lot of biblical history in Egypt going all the way back to the days of Moses. There's a lot of biblical history. And here's the Messiah right there in Egypt. Uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are there. It would be 75 miles to even get there. One commentator said it would be another 100 miles across the border to get to a place to where there was real safety. Now, when you look at what Mary and Joseph offered at the temple when they took Jesus, it, it was a it, it was not a lavish offering that they made. Many would believe that Mary and Joseph were probably a very simple means, certainly not wealthy. Joseph is a carpenter. Mary is probably a teenage girl. They did not have much, and that's what it seems to be in the, in the, when we read the story in Scripture. How would they be able to, at the drop of a hat, be able to fund and afford a trip that was unplanned, that was unexpected, right, Upwards of possibly close to 200 miles, 75 at least, just to get out of the land of Israel and into the land of Egypt. Well, what a, a lot of folks believe is it was God's provision that came through the Magi as they're making that trip with gold and with frankincense and myrrh that would ultimately be given ahead of time to fund what they never saw coming, but what God knew was coming down the road, right? And there's a, there's a really good teaching point there especially in this season for us, as we stand on the verge. This is not a New Year's message. This is wrapping up Christmas, right? But what a great timing of this to remember that as we stand on the very edge, I mean, this is January 1st. We've got 
a full year ahead of us to know that as we look forward, we can't see any further down the road than what Mary and Joseph could see. They didn't know Egypt was in the plans. They didn't know, and they'd already made one 90-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem on the back of a donkey, and she delivered, and now they're making another trip uh, of at least 75 miles, probably even further, now to another land that, as far as we know, they'd never even been to. And yet all along, God is pulling strings, God is making plans, God is putting together his, his perfect plan, and he's going to ultimately provide for them along the way. Listen, he's going to do the same thing for you as well. There's a principle here, and the principle is that God provides for his followers. He provides for his followers. He's always faithful to provide for his followers. And for you and for me in this year, as we set out in a brand new year, not knowing what's coming, not knowing the details, all we have to know is that God has said, I've got this, and I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to meet your needs as you follow me, right? That's crucial, as we follow him. Here's the thing, we can't just go running after chasing our dreams and our plans and how we want life to be on our terms and then blame God whenever things don't seem to come together. We can't take our paycheck and go blow it like the prodigal son and then blame God for not providing for our needs. We have to follow him, we have to follow his plan, we have to follow his ways, we have to follow his truth, which we have to spend time there to be able to know that. And it's as we follow him the best we can, fully submissive to him, obedient as Joseph was, we're gonna see that in just a second, that, that as we follow follow him. God says, I've taken responsibility for your needs. I'm Jehovah Jireh. I'm the provider. I'm going to provide for you. And he did it all the way back here in this part of what we would call the Christmas story that often gets so overlooked. He provided for Mary, for Joseph, and for Jesus. Look down at verse 15. Speaking of Joseph, it says, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And this would be the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son. Even this would fulfill prophecy. Mary and Joseph may have never seen it coming. God knew exactly what he was going to do. This prophecy would have been written about 700 years before. I mean, this was all falling into place. It looked so scattered, so haphazard. I mean, traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem, giving birth, placing the baby in a cave, right, in a manger, and now all of a sudden, out of fear of life, within the next couple of years, they're, they're, they're having to travel all the way to Egypt now. But all of this prophesied 700 or so years before, falling into place just as God had ordained. <clears throat> Verse 16, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, Remember, he told them, come back, tell me where the child is so that I can worship him. He became very enraged, and he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. This is why we can, we can understand, and I, I think reasonably expect that at this point Jesus is around the, the age of two because of this decree that Herod has put out. Now, he could have been younger. He's definitely not at the manger. If you look over in verse 11, in that same chapter, chapter 2, verse 11, when the Magi arrived, it said that they, they came into the house. So they're, they're definitely not at the manger. I mean, I, I hate to, to just shatter the manger scene that you probably just took down and put back in the attic again where, you know, there's Jesus and, and, uh, and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds are there and the star is there and the magi are there and, and it's all just kind of everybody showing up at one, one spot. Again, they're in a different place now. <laughs> they're in a house and many believe based on Herod's decree that could have been a, 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 upwards of two years that have passed ultimately. Now, I want you to just let verse 16 sink in for just a second. 
And I want you to imagine the absolute horror and the brutality. Remember what type of person Herod was. He'd murdered his own wife, some of his own kids for the sake of his throne. Imagine what it was like as his plan is implemented all across the city of Bethlehem. Imagine the cries. Imagine the shrieks of horror. Imagine the brutality. Imagine the military force that's coming in, pushing down any physical resistance to carry out what their leader, Herod, has decreed. To essentially eliminate an entire generation of male Jewish children in that specific city. And at the same time, let's take what he did there and let's put it in a bigger context of how the enemy has always sought to come against the Messiah. This is not the first time. All the way back in Genesis, for example, when God created Adam and Eve, before humanity even had a chance to build any momentum, the enemy is showing up and he's bringing temptation which led to sin into God's perfect creation. You go back all throughout Old Testament history and you see the enemy coming after God's plan. You look in the book of Esther, for example. Remember Haman and remember Mordecai and Esther, how Haman implemented this plan to essentially do the same thing that Herod would do. And, and, and he put it to, to, into place, this, this plan, to eliminate the Jews, right, from the land, exterminate the Jews from the land, and, and, and essentially uh, an aim from the enemy's perspective to eliminate any possibility of a Messiah continuing in that line. And yet God prevailed. You look here at what Herod had done to try to eliminate the Messiah, and yet God prevailed. You look at what would happen whenever the enemy himself would come to Jesus and tempt him. Three specific occasions we see in the book of Matthew where the enemy comes, the devil comes, and, and he tempts Jesus on those three specific occasions. Don't assume those were the only three times Jesus ever faced temptation, right? But every single time was an attempt on the part of the enemy to try to derail the Messiah, to, to ultimately lead to a Messiah who was a fallen, sinful Messiah, and yet never would his plan work. God would always prevail. And then ultimately all the way to the cross. Whenever Jesus is nailed to a cross and the enemy again trying to do this final option of being able to eliminate the Messiah and ultimately what it did was provide salvation, the opportunity at least, for all of us to be saved, right? God prevailed. And when we look at this story and we begin to see how the enemy came against the Messiah, how he came against, against God's perfect plan, listen, we're going to look at this in just a second. His work hasn't ended whenever the gospels come to a close. It still continues. Don't be surprised whenever the enemy looks to bring an end, not to Jesus, but to his reign in your life. The enemy would love nothing more than to see the, than to see the reign of Jesus, your Lord, your Savior, for many of you in this room. He would love nothing more than to see his reign come to an end in your life. He can't eliminate the Messiah. He can't take away your salvation. But what the enemy would love to do, if you, if you could go into the strategy room of hell today, and if there, was a, if there was a planning table, right, and if there was an agenda on the wall for you specifically, what he's going to aim to do is to eradicate and eliminate and remove any influence in your life that points to the glory of God. 
And what he's also going to look to do is to try to eliminate and eradicate and remove any joy in your life that comes because of your relationship with God. And overall, he's going to ultimately look to... to derail you and to derail your confidence in Christ, to derail your dependence upon Christ, and to, de- and, and to derail your testimony of him. That's his goal for you this year. See, enemy's goal for you. I, I'm about to do a study with any, any of the men in our church who want to come. We, we sent out an email. We're going to be looking to, uh, we're going to be promoting this more towards the end of our, this month. We're going to do a, a book study for any of the men who want to come, it's called Finishing Strong, that deals exactly with that topic, running the race to the point to where we can get to the finish line and say, I've run the good race, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Because we live in a fallen world and the enemy that seems to run rampant is after you as well, Christian, in much the same way, because this is who he is, as he did in Jesus' day, even as a child. Look in verse 17, verse 18. So here it puts into place this decree. All of the male children, two years old and under, were to be killed. Verse 17, then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Jeremiah the prophet would have spoken about 600 years prior to this. Verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. What's Jeremiah speaking about there? Jeremiah is speaking about a real event in history, which was the exile of the Jewish people to Babylon. 586 B.C. is essentially when that took place. God's people, because of their sin, even more so because of their unwillingness to repent, to hear God drawing them back, Their desire was to go it themselves, to do it their way. They abandoned God, and so God led them. He disciplined them by leading them into exile into Babylon. Ramah was one of the cities where the Jews would be gathered waiting to be deported to Babylon, to exile, drug out of their homeland. So when Jeremiah references this, and especially when Matthew puts this into his gospel, <clears throat> when he includes this, that what Herod had done in, in looking to, to kill all of the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, it harkened back to one of the dark days in Jewish history, a day when they were taken out of their homeland and taken off into captivity. Verse 19, it says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. This is the third time an angel has appeared to Joseph in Egypt, or or has appeared to Joseph. So he appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, verse 20, get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Three times an angel comes to Joseph. Let's pause and let's shine the spotlight on Joseph for a second. First time, as I mentioned earlier, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. It ran counter to everything that he had expected. The second time the angel comes and says, get up out of your house, (laughs) go quickly to the land of Egypt. And now the third time, leave Egypt and go back to the land of Israel. 
And all three times what we see about Joseph here is that he was responsive and he was obedient. Again, setting a pattern for us that when God moves, he's never going to move contrary to his word, but when he moves and when he speaks and when he says do this, the only logical response for us as followers of Jesus is to respond in obedience, just like Joseph did. He set a perfect picture for us. Look at verse 19. Whenever it says that Herod had died, right? So he is off the scene. The angel says the ones who sought your child's life are dead. Verse 22. So when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. He was afraid to go back to that specific location. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. Again, another long journey. Verse 23, and he came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He, the Messiah, shall be called a Nazarene. Archelaus was the son of Herod the Great. He was unpopular with the Jews. The Jews didn't didn't really care for him. He would ultimately be removed from his position of leadership by the Romans, ultimately. But God here is continuing to play out his plan. He brings them, verse 23 says, back to the city of Nazareth. Remember, all of this started when they left Nazareth to come down to Bethlehem because of the census. Jesus is born, then they go ultimately to Egypt, and now they're back in Nazareth again. So here's the interesting thing about Nazareth. Nazareth is not really mentioned at all in the Old Testament. There was nothing that made Nazareth significant. There was no significance there. There was nothing attached to Nazareth necessarily. In fact, look over in the book of John, or you could just look at this one real quickly on the screen behind me. In John chapter 1, when Jesus' ministry now publicly is beginning, is beginning to gain some speed, it's just beginning to start. Jesus is around the age of 30 here. <laughs> He's calling some of his disciples. Look down in John verse 46. Uh, it says, Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Philip mentions the Messiah. He mentions that he had met Jesus. And the only response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? You've got cities I'm sure you could think of right now that you, you can't stand to go to. And if you have to go there because of work or if you've got relatives there, you can't stand that city. I'm not going to name it because sure enough, you probably were raised there. So whatever city comes to mind, you're thinking, what good can come out of this city? I mean, maybe even there, there's a, a city nearby here. I mean, you're thinking, what 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 is good ever come out of that particular city or out of that location? That's the way Nazareth was. And yet this is exactly where God puts Mary and Joseph and Jesus, in a place of obscurity, in a place that was not known for anything specifically. It would be known soon enough because Jesus would be known as Jesus of Nazareth. It's about 55 miles north of Jerusalem. And God's plan now is continuing to be worked out perfectly so you look at all this and and this brings us kind of to the close of the what we would call the true story of Christmas according to the gospels next time we really see Jesus for the most part he's in the age of 12 he's in the temple Herod's temple his mom and dad Mary and Joseph they're, they they leave along with others Jesus is kind of overlooked he's he's lost in the crowd they go back after three days they find him in the temple and every, everyone there is just absolutely stunned and amazed the next thing we know about Jesus from there is for him as an adult. So, so there's a close to kind of the Christmas story. But as we move through this, I think what we see are a couple of huge implications. And let me just 
begin to close by giving these two implications to you. First implication, this is what comes out of this for us, is that, that you and I face an enemy in our lives. We face an enemy in our walks with Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, that enemy is going to look to frustrate you this year. He's going to look to derail you in your faith. He's going to look to cause you to think that you can depend on yourself more than you can depend on God. He's going to cause you to think that it's okay for you to go it alone, that you don't really need everybody. You don't need to be a part of a church. Yeah, obedience is not that big of a deal, right? Time in God's word is, 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 is uh, negotiable, right? If you've got time, you can do it. If you don't, you, you don't have to, right? He's going to, he's going to try to feed all this stuff to you through the course of this year. And I will tell you by the end of this year, 365 days from now, I don't know if it's a leap year or not. I'm not sure. I didn't check. But let's just say 365 days from now, when we come to the end of this year, there will be people, more than likely, if odds play out, that were once a part of us who will not be a part of us anymore. Not because God called them home, but because they drifted. Not because God called them to their place of reward, but because they walked away. And it doesn't happen by accident, and it often doesn't happen quickly. It happens as a slow fade. And you have to decide, do I want to be one of those people, right, who ends the year further from God than where I started because the enemy is going to be at work? Or am I going to make the commitment to press in close to him? Am I going to make the, make the commitment to develop a walk of discipleship with him? And am I, am I going to make a decision and am I going to be intentional about not just being a part of the body of Christ where I find encouragement and where I find at times correction and where I find uh, support, but am I also going to do my part to be a part of the disciple-making process that God wants me to be a part of? Because you're, you've got an enemy who's not sleeping at the same time you do. There's a second implication that comes out of this. And the second implication, again, we touched on earlier, that God ultimately is faithful to provide for and to even guide us as we seek to follow him and as we seek to honor him with our lives. When I was at the University of Georgia, I was involved in a campus ministry called Campus Crusade, Athletes in Action. The fellow who discipled me, I mentioned before, his name Ray Lawrence. He's in heaven now. He wasn't that much older than me. God called him home early seemingly from our perspective. But Ray was a part of a ministry where they had to raise support. And so he was constantly, as he was ministering to students on campus, <clears throat> he was constantly kind of in support raising mode because he had to support those who'd be a part of his ministry financially that would help to, uh, to give and to help to enable him to keep doing what God had called him to do. And I remember he quoted a verse to me way back then that whenever I hear this verse, I can't help but think about Ray. He had such a confidence in the Lord and in the Lord's provision. And the verse he would often quote was Psalm 37, verse 25, which says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. The beautiful picture there is that God is a God who provides God is a God who guides us. All we have to do is look at the rest of the story at the end of that Christmas passage, right, of how God did both of those. He guided Mary and Joseph 
He provided for them along the way. Can we even say miraculously through the Magi more than likely who followed a star and miraculously that brought them to where they needed to be? And it was through the gifts they brought more than likely we can assume Mary and Joseph would use to fund their trip to Egypt that they didn't see coming, but God knew it. And as we stand here at the edge of a new year, man, God is going to guide and God is going to provide in just the same way today and in the same way through this year as we follow him as he did back then. But don't forget, we have to be intentional about those things that matter most because Christian maturity doesn't happen by accident. It happens when we present ourselves every day on the anvil to say, God, I present myself as a living sacrifice. Would you do the work that you desire in me starting today? Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. And what what better time than today, January 1st, for you as a Christian, not to be saved all over again because you didn't lose it, but for you to kind of, in a fresh way, present yourself to the Lord today, to say, God, I present myself as a living sacrifice to you to do with as you desire, knowing you can trust him, knowing he's going to be faithful, knowing he loves you. What a great time right now just to make that prayer of commitment. Maybe for some of you, you don't have the relationship with God that, that today you, you desire, right? Maybe God is stirring in you even right now that, that there's, there's a, a relationship with God that's lacking, and yet there's a desire that's there. And maybe you're beginning to wonder even now, well, well, how long do I have to keep coming to church, you know, to get this relationship? Or how much do I have to obey to be able to have a relationship with God where I can have peace and joy and know my sins are forgiven that I'm going to heaven when I die? How can I have that? What, what do I need to do? Listen, the, the, the beautiful picture of the Bible is, is reflected in what Jesus has already done for you. He died on the cross in your place. He paid for your sins, not his. He didn't have sin. He took your sin upon himself and he paid for it fully. Three days later, he rose again and he lives today. And the whole reason he did that was to fulfill exactly what the angel had said to Joseph all the way back before Jesus was even born, that his name would be called Jesus and he would save his people from their sins. And today, if you desire a relationship with God, the plan that God has put in place, the only plan is not a do better plan where we do better and hopefully earn our way. It's not a plan where we show up at church and hopefully impress God enough to where he'll take us in as part of his own. No, it's a plan that involves surrender. We confess our sins, Lord Jesus, I have blown it, I have sinned. But we also confess him as Lord. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God, that you died and that you rose for me. And then we surrender. And Lord, would you take my life and forgive me and be my savior and be my Lord from this day forward. When you pray a prayer like that, a prayer at owning your sin and yet asking for Jesus to forgive and take over, he'll make you his own. And you'll begin a relationship with God that he takes very, very seriously. And so God, we thank you for a great way to start the new year is by closing out the story of Christmas and how in this overlooked passage, we often just sort of rush past because we've got the rest of the year to get to. What we see there is an enemy at work, but a God who prevails. And not only a God who prevails, but a God who provides and sustains. And Lord, we thank you that that's the way you still work today. Lord, may we not walk in fear. 
Because greater are you who is in us than he who's in the world. We don't fear the enemy, but we do respect what he can do if we give him a foothold in our lives. And so, God, may we remain close to you. May we, may we spend time in your word. May we conform our lives to your truth. May we spend time with your people. May we be devoted to you in obedience. And may we be a part of spreading the gospel through the lives that we live, making disciples and telling others about who you are. And God, for any victories that come, Lord, even right now in advance, we just give you the glory for all of it. And we thank you for being the God you are to us. In Jesus' name we pray.